Da 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 da. Don't sue us. We're here for this weekend long. With me, Denise Howell. We're here with Evan Brown, Neelai Patel, and Matt McCari. We've got a seat that tweets democracy and all that stuff. Apple versus Samsung, and Dana Boyd getting her Tumblr handle handle back next on Twill. Netcasts you love from people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 109, recorded April 29, 2011. Taco Suits. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com twit. And by Trim Tonic. Trim Tonic is a natural appetite suppressant tonic that takes the edge off being hungry. Enter your coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount at Trim Tonic. That's T-R-I-M-T-O-N-I-Q. Hello, and I'm Denise Howell, and you have joined us for This Week in Law, episode 109. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a great panel of folks to talk about the latest developments in technology law, starting with Neelai Patel from This Is My Next. Hi, Neelai. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's great to have you back. Um, also joining us is Matt Macari from Some IP Law. Hi, Matt. Hi, how's it going? Going great. Wonderful to see you again. That's good to be here again. And also joining us again is Evan Brown from InternetCases.com and Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago. Hello, Evan. Hey, good afternoon. It's great to see you. Happy Friday. Looking forward to this conversation. Happy Friday. Happy Royal Wedding Day or <laughs> day where we can all witness the Royal Wedding. Right. Or, and, uh, you know, think about the American Revolution. <laughs> well, no, explain. Oh, because... Well, we right. No yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, our friend Ben Snitkoff put up a great tweet this morning. You know, he's been on the show a few times and he was talking about how people had brought donuts to work to celebrate the royal wedding. And he says, you know, we fought a war over this, folks. <laughs> so here we are. All these trappings of royalty. Well, I trotted out my, uh, my funny hats for the occasion because that was my favorite part of the wedding coverage was all the funny hats. So right on. I love those Brits and their headgear. All right. Well, um, we last week did our show, uh, The Other Pump Drops, about the Apple suit against Samsung. So yet another pump dropped. And uh, Samsung, of course, as we knew they would, countersued Apple. And uh, uh, Neelai, you had sort of the definitive post on, on the Apple suit. And uh, we're waiting with bated breath at the end of it for what Samsung's response was going to be. So now we have it. Why don't you give us your reaction to it? Well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, Tim Cook on um, their financial results call said, you know, we've been talking to Samsung for some time. Uh, we couldn't resolve the issues. Now we have to rely on the court. Um, and, you know, you can tell that Samsung was sort of primed to respond to this lawsuit. Um, you know, they filed almost within a week. Uh, within the week, uh, they filed three lawsuits in uh, Korea, Tokyo, and Germany. And then yesterday, uh, they filed a, a countersuit uh, in the Northern District of California alleging 10 patents, seven that are on like 3G stuff, and uh, three that are on user interface. What's interesting, I think, is that they didn't file the reply yet to Apple suit. So it's almost like 
you know, Apple pulled the trigger, Samsung said, well, we're ready to see you right back, and they sued them right back. Uh, but they haven't yet acknowledged, you know, Apple's suit. And, you know, you don't need to put the reply and the countersuit together, and I think it's kind of interesting that Samsung was ready with these countersuits, um, but they, you know, they had a week. I don't know if they could have done the reply in that time, but they didn't do it. So what what's also interesting to me is that nobody has seen these three other filings in Korea, Japan, and Germany. So Samsung says they filed. I don't know anybody who's seen them or reported on them or says what the patents in them are. Um, uh, you know, the 10 that are here, I'm looking at them. There'll be a post on this is my next uh, later today. They're very, very technical, the seven patents on, on UMTS. It's all about radio frames and data transmission and uh, really nitty gritty stuff. Underlying it is sort of the idea that 3G is governed by a standards body, um, and Samsung is required to license at least some of these patents as a member of the standards body under fair and reasonable terms, uh, but they, the com their complaint doesn't indicate which of these patents might be uh, you know, mandatory, uh, under any sort of mandatory licensing scheme. So there's a lot here to unpack. Um, and yet to come is Samsung's reply to act Apple's actual trademark trade dress patent claims. And so that'll happen next. And, you know, my expectation, I'm sure you guys probably agree, is that all this will end up being consolidated into one monster case instead of these, you know, several different proceedings. What do you think about that, Matt? First of all, have you seen any of the th things in Japan, Korea, and Germany? Or know of anybody who has? No, just the reports that they've been filed. Um, like the next was like within two days they were filed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, this, it's actually crazy that they were able to, obviously they had something put together beforehand to get something filed this quickly. Um, I was going to ask Neelai if he knows what jurisdiction this uh, Samsung case was in because I'm forgetting right now. Uh, the U.S. one is Northern District of California. And that's yeah, so, Apple and Samsung had filed both in there. So, yeah, what? so that's, that's uh, obviously a... Uh, uh, it'll make it easy to decide whether they're going to consolidate it. But it is pretty crazy right. to get these things filed as quickly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Samsung had an extension uh, to file their counterclaims in the case that Apple initiated. So to have, this, to have this thing filed so quickly, because, you know, whether or not you, it takes much time to put these things together as far as a, a physical complaint, the due diligence you're supposed to do to get there has to, you know, take some time and, and either they were working 24-7 or they had this thing ready already. Well, you know, but, it's only, it's, it's 10 patents and Samsung's patent portfolio, which they disclose is 28,700 U.S. patents, 5,700 telecommunications patents. So to go through and pick the 10 they're going to claim, they've, that's months of work, right? I mean, at the, yeah. at the outset, that's months of work. So I, I do think that they, they were ready for the prospect of litigation throughout their discussions with Apple. Um, and I think we're seeing the fruits of that labor in the fact that they can do this so quickly. Yeah, and on the uh, substantive side, this is a uh, looking at, you know, Apple's, Apple's case against Samsung, and you did a great article. Neil, are you sure you're not a patent attorney? <laughs> I'm not a patent attorney. <laughs> I have a lot of friends. That's all I can say. Yeah, no, it was great. It's uh, very concise and uh, gets into, but yet still gets into the details. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a litigator's and a patent litigator's dream to have a case um, first of all, with design patents in it, because uh, I think the misconception out there is design patents are, are very narrow and have, have no force. But there's a lot of wiggle room in how these are interpreted and how they're enforced against defendants. And, um, and to have something that's a relatively close knockoff that you can go after with what I see as very good design patents as far as scope. Whether they're valid, we'll find out. But the scope of them, with the way they've dashed out lines and really focused in on certain features, is is very important. It provides a nice story 
for Apple to tell during litigation. It has a lot to do with look and feel, um, whereas Samsung has come back with patents that, that just, you know, put juries and judges to sleep with regard to the technicalities of Wi-Fi and 3G. And I mean, <clears throat> there's some of that built into Apple's case as well with some of the utility patents. But if you look at, you look at just the general overall feel of the litigation, it really is going after this aesthetic quality of, of the iOS. And, and that's something that's much easier uh, for Apple to get through to a judge and a jury and... Um, and I'm not sure if this has been mentioned before, bringing in those design patents um, automatically gives, uh, statutorily gives Apple a chance to go after uh, um, Samsung's lost profits rather than just developing a normal kind of reasonable royalty model for damages. So that can be a huge upside um, for Apple at least as, as they initiated their own suit. Well, in Samsung's case, among its 28,000 patents, did it simply not have the design patents to be able to fight back with those? What do you think, Neil? I, I, I don't know. I, I, haven't, I can't say I've done an exhaustive survey mm -hmm. of, Apple, of Samsung's patent portfolio. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it is interesting that they went for, I mean, these are really, there's three kind of UI patents, which are interesting. Um, you know, I think there's a story to tell about touchscreen interface and, you know, other interface concepts there. But the seven, you know, the bulk is the seven very, very dry technical radio transmission patents, which I have no doubt that the, the technology that they relate to is important and, you know, helps make our phones better. But, I mean, Apple is, you know, this is a, Apple's case is a broadside. I think the foundation of Apple's case are these utility patents. And then, you know, the structure of it is this aesthetic. And I think that's a great story, right? You're not only, you know, infringing on our technical underpinnings, but now you're, you're taking our look and feel. And that's, I mean, that's a narrative that I think the media is going to be very interested in. That I think the judge and the jury, particularly, you know, a jury is going to really sink into. It's the iPhone, right? And then for Samsung to come back and be like, yeah, but you took the way we transmit data is, I, I don't know, you know, like the, from a narrative aspect, that's, it feels a little weaker. I, you know, in terms of interpreting the patents, man, I mean, I'm, I'm reading them today and they are, they are dry. They're, they're hard to understand. It's taking me a while to get through them. How much do you think that that really has influenced both parties' decisions, especially Apple's in this, in realizing that there are going to be journalists like you, Neelai, writing about this stuff? I mean, do you think that entered the, uh, the lawyers' minds at all when they were drafting the complaint? You know, and we talked about this last week with Marty Schwimmer, uh, kind of how sometimes... Well, uh, usually always, you kind of put your strong claims first toward the beginning. And we've got all these, you know, aesthetic issues with all this, something that the general public can understand, um, you know, and by that I mean, you know, non-wonky patent attorneys here. How much do you think it affects the overall strategy and thinking about all this stuff as to, you know, what, uh, what just the, the general perception of the litigation is going to be like? Um, well, I think Apple's complaint was written for the press. I do. Um, the way it's structured, I mean, it, it's, it's a narrative. And the actual claims uh, come at the very end, and they're very, you know, they're very dry. You know, it's claim for trade dress infringement. Apple believes Samsung has infringed the trade dress. Trade, you know, claim for federal trade dress infringement. Here are the registration numbers. Apple believes Samsung has infringed it, right? Mm -hmm. The story, the narrative is in the body. Uh, here, you know, look at these icons, look at, look at these photos. It's not built into the claims, which, you know, I think the claims are kind of hard for people to understand and the way they're structured. So they built, I mean, I think Apple's, 
entire complaint. You know, it's on their PR site. You go to apple.com slash PR, there's the complaint. Um, and similarly, um, Samsung, I mean, they emailed the complaint to me, right? I mean, they, you know, obviously they know I'm going to want to pull it apart, but they're making it available through their press team. Um, so I, there is a huge element of this where there's a desire to frame the debate and to set a narrative through these complaints. They want the press to understand what the claims are. Um, you know, it's easier for Apple because they have pictures. And, you know, the number one piece of feedback I got on my piece, which is like, you know, 8,000 words was, I love that picture of the icons. Really made it, right. you know, really made it mm -hmm. easy to understand. And I was like, that's one claim out of 16, right? Um, so right. I mean, there, as, there's a lot of that. all of us lawyers on the show uh, had to chuckle too on your personal blog, the picture of the lifted uh, photograph, the, the non-licensed copyrighted right. photograph that Apple did not have permission to include well, you know, was also I, fairly humorous. I, I thought that was really funny. I wanted to build that out more in the piece, but I didn't want to distract. I mean, that's like really minor. It's like mm -hmm. the damages on that are so low and it's so stupid, but you know, it's funny. And I, I wanted to build it out more in the piece, but I didn't want to distract from the real issue, which is here's a billion dollar IP infringement lawsuit. Um, but it's funny, and I, I think it's crazy that Apple's Morrison Enforcer, you know, some associate was like, oh, this is perfectly acceptable for me to go to Android community and crop their watermark. I mean, if when I was in Engadget, if I cropped an Android community watermark, I would have gotten 5,000 angry emails from people being like, this is copyright infringement, we're going to sue you, you hate Android. And it's like, Apple, Apple is doing it. Like, right. do you think Android community wants to be a part of this lawsuit and provide, like, it's... The more I think about it, the more ridiculous it seems. Yeah, it's a good lesson for those lawyers who, as you pointed out, were writing for the media, that if you're going to write for the media, you have to do it like a journalist and follow all the rules. They knew exactly yeah. what they were doing, though. I mean, it's, you know, it's fair use, don't you think? It gives us something no to talk way. about. But well, it might be fair use until you cropped out the watermarks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I, uh, I'd like to go back to that, uh, <clears throat> the issue of whether or not they really intended it to be this... Uh, the story, this narrative uh, with their complaint, and I think they did. And the reason it's important, it's important to look at, they have this enormous portfolio as well, Apple does. And they have all these very technical patents dealing with very technical hardware issues. And those have been asserted against other manufacturers, HTC and Nokia. So those are out there. This one is much different. It, it, it for the most part, excludes those. I mean, like, like Neelai said, there are some of those in there. But... Um, uh, it really paints this picture for you and kind of walks you down this path to explain, you know, the look and feel of the iPhone. And, you know, much of the detail they've put in their complaint is completely uh, unnecessary. I mean, under, uh, we all know notice pleading doesn't require any of the details they've put in there with regard to uh, what essentially is their argument going forward. Um, they could have just done notice pleading, said, here's the product, here's the patent, here's the cause of action, here's our, our, our prayer for relief, and they're done. Uh, they didn't do that. This is, yeah, this is clearly kind of a, a different approach, and they're, they're doing it much different. And a lot of it's because they have the story to tell because it's a close resemblance between the, the two systems. Right. So, well, I mean, there's really not much to say at this point. We have the cross-claims pending. We have other claims by Samsung pending internationally, and now it just has to sort of unfold. And uh, Neela, you were pointing out that, you know, it's possible that at some point these parties broker an agreement and decide, okay, you've got your patents, we've got ours, and they 
figure something out and go home. But, you know, it seems like early days for that kind of a resolution. Um, do you have any sort of final thoughts on what we can expect next? Or, you know, is this just going to work its way through its court system and pop back on the radar in a few months and we'll talk about it then? Um, I think the next time it'll pop up, I think, is when we get the reply, which I mm -hmm. have to anticipate is in the next few weeks, right? Um, so, I mean, hopefully that's when the next time it'll pop up. In terms of settling out the, the patent claims, the cross-license or something, mm -hmm. I could see it. I, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, Samsung, I mean, Apple is Samsung's biggest customer, right? At some point, they have, like, you know, Apple's buying the radio components from Samsung. So these, these underlying utility patents on the radio stuff, it feels like, they have to be able to settle those and figure that out. I think Apple's going to push the trade dress, the trademark stuff, um, really far. I, you know, if they lose those or they, they back off on those, it's, I think it's open season on their aesthetic, and I think that's the last thing they want. Um, you know, one question I have, which I don't know if you guys covered last week, um, you know, they're claiming trademarks on these icons. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, like, you know, the iTunes icon, I get, right? It's a brand. It's a store. It's, the, you know, the number one music store, like, around the world, the biggest brand you can possibly think of. So it makes sense. They're like, okay, your music player trademark is infringing. I, I see that very directly. Um, the phone icon, I, the more I think about it, the more that's a really crazy gray area, right? The phone, I mean, it, it's part of, like, the OS. But it's, it, there's no source confusion there. I don't, I don't see it. But at the same time, it's an app, right? It's the phone app. And if you built any other type of app and gave it an icon and put it on the store, I think there would be some presumption of, of protection for that icon as a trademark. So what do you think the, the, the built-in system apps, what kind of protection do you think they get? I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Well, we had Marty on last week, and he talked a lot about the, the trade dress, trademark um, considerations, and uh, left us with the notion that um, if it is a functional sort of component associated with the, the actual design feature, then your trade dress claim is not so strong. But if it is um, something that is associated with um, the brand and the, you know, this is what people think of when they look at that image or that yeah, packaging that, design like, or what have you. Go ahead. You know, I mean, that's the trade dress. I get that. These the mm -hmm. icons are registered trademarks, right? They're mm -hmm. source identified. There are that are. There's nothing functional about an icon apart from right. the fact that you can press it, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's washed away. I, I'm curious whether you think there's a source identification to the consumer that builds. You know, there's a likelihood of confusion when you press the music player icon on, on a Samsung Android device. That's mm -hmm. like <laughs> the, the window cleaners <laughs> walking around behind you. Look like a big uh, LCD. No, they're, they're screens. Um, this is totally nuts. Well, I'm, it, being, I'm being told one minute. So I'm wondering if you think the phone app icon is, um, uh, is, a, is like a source identifier for consumers. I see. So I when someone don't. sees a phone, do they think of Apple? Right. right. A green phone icon. The way that yeah. when you clearly the see the iTunes icon. Right. When you clearly see the iTunes icon, you think of iTunes, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But I don't know about the phone app on the, on the phone. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Right. Well, that, guy, that guy just installed three screens in like four seconds. That was incredibly <laughs> that impressive. Is. You need to bring him over here and do some work. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that one, Evan? 
Well, you know, this is something that I didn't get around to saying last week because, you know, Marty said everything good to, to be saying about it last week. And But, you know, as I've thought about this, I had this on the brain for another week now, uh, there's something that's very fundamental that bothers me about the whole trademark trade dress claim of this lawsuit. And that is, you know, one of these elements of the likelihood of confusion analysis that we didn't talk about last week, but I think really is dispositive in all of this. And, and when I think about it a certain way, I say to myself, you know, where did we lose sight of reality here? And where did we decide to jump off into the technicalities of the uh, individual trees here and lose sight of the forest and that and it boils down to this trademark law as we know and as we discussed last week protects the consuming public against confusion we don't want there to be a likelihood of confusion as to the source of particular goods or services and so to the extent that there is a likelihood of confusion the law and equity will intervene and it will stop it from happening and it will make the aggrieved party whole Good grief. Who really goes into uh, you know, a Verizon store or a T-Mobile store or an AT&T store and thinks, you know, even though these, the, the Samsung phone may look a lot like the iPhone, it's the closest thing to the iPhone that, that isn't an iPhone or however you want to characterize it. Who is it that really thinks when they're buying one of these things that they're getting a, that they're, when they're buying a Samsung phone that they're getting an iPhone and vice versa? This, you know, there's just something that really nags at me uh, with this and it, it makes me feel the same sense of frustration toward trademark law as we bring up, you know, so very often when it comes to copyright law and some of the absurdities uh, that we see once in a a while where you know as as trademark uh, people being uh, wearing hats of being concerned about trademark we dive into the interstitial technicalities and lose sight of, of some of the bigger pictures so when it comes to looking at particular things like likelihood of confusion as to the phone icon my thoughts of that are just representational of kind of a, a larger disdain that has developed in my mind after thinking about this for a few days <laughs> well I have a couple right. of responses to that right um, one, I think the phone icons are different. I think they fall into different buckets, right? And then, maybe that's what I'm stumbling towards is I think the iTunes icon, it, that's actually meaningful, right? I mean, Apple sells a ton of music through iTunes and in a mm -hmm. lot of consumers' minds, right? That is music. That's where you get music from. So for yes. Samsung to use the iTunes icon for the music player, that is source confusion, right? I mean, well, it's the pink. average consumer, right? It's so the phone icons and stuff. I think that's a different bucket. I think that has to be thought of differently. Um, as to the phones, who goes in the Verizon store and buys a, a Fascinate and thinks it's an iPhone, I think the answer is a surprisingly huge number of people. Um, and this is, I mean, I wrote about it in my piece. Like, I know, I have per like friends, like my personal friends who are like, I went to the Verizon store. They said this was just like the iPhone. It looks like the iPhone. I bought it. And now they have a Fascinate. And, you know, they're like, screw it. Oh, my God, this isn't an iPhone. Um, you have friends I think with people? Yeah, I mean, I have friends. You know, lawyers with friends. That's what happens when you quit well, the profession. Well, no, uh, it just it surprised <laughs> me. But, uh, anyway. Right. So, so I have um, a, a response to this, too. And that is that, um, and, and I think Web 545 in IRC agrees with me that, uh, I think that these phone icons that they have trademarks in, in a world where we have lawsuits over these phones that all look and seem so much alike and can be confused, as you just said, Neelai, um, that the icons do become a source identifier, that you look at that green phone and you, th you know that you're holding an iPhone um, because you know those, those distinctive icons are there. 
But I, mean, I, I don't think that's been explored. I mean, I, I'm very curious to, mm -hmm. to hear if there's cases on that. I mean, it just seems so novel to me. And I think, you know, Apple chose to go trademark instead of copyright, right? I think their experience in the 80s and 90s with look and feel and trying to copyright a whole OS, I think that burned them forever. And I think it's interesting that they've gone trade dress trademark with this stuff as mm -hmm. opposed to copyright. Because the natural place for those icons to be is copyright. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think... My opinion is that Apple wants to tell a story here, and I think narrative, we've been talking about a narrative, and it's a, it's a good phrase for it. Uh, they want to tell a story in the totality of all of this. So they want to show you, and they, they would probably actually do it in the reverse order that Neelai did it. They would look at things like the iTunes icon. They would, and, they, and, and when a reality comes, when it comes down to it, they might get away with that to some extent. Uh, technically, they, they can't because they have to go through each individual trademark and they have to justify uh, and, and prove up infringement. And I think it simply might come down to the fact that they may not get infringement on the phone icon because of this, the difference is not so much because, I mean, because people aren't confused. And, you know, then you kind of look at what the differences are and you can see some differences between that and the messaging icon and things like that. So I think they want to tell a story. You put them side by side like this, it tells a nice story. Uh, perhaps not starting with the the most uh, well. That's their order. I use their order. Up. What's that? Yeah. That's their order. I that's Apple's order. I just prettied up the claims. Okay, so we're talking about uh, folks confused about the identities of phones and various things that um, convey or betoken identity. And another interesting thing happened this week involving Dana Boyd. Are you guys familiar with Dana Boyd? You know who she is? Yes. She's great. Yes. Yeah, she is, um, and I'm reading from her site right now, a researcher at Microsoft Research New England and a fellow at the Harvard Berkman Center for Internet at Society. She's a doctorate, a great speaker. I've seen her at tons of tech conferences, always speaking on very high in the atmosphere kinds of privacy and other concerns and bringing them down to a, a very personal level and explaining them very well. Um, so she's a great thinker and policy person, and she is at Zephoria on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, this is just sort of a handle that she has wound up using throughout the years because it's been convenient. It's been a way to designate herself while still maintaining some anonymity, uh, you know, sort of online and, and uh, also building up her own sort of personal online brand without really intending to do that. It sort of happened by accident as you read along with her posts. Um, and it turns out that there's a company called Zephoria out there, and this is a story that I think happens over and over again, and we've talked about it before on Twill, that um, in these social media spaces, in the world of domain names after the slash, if you will, um, that there's a lot of identity happening there, but yet it's not something that, you know, you can go out and register and have ICANN protection for and UDRP um, arbitration about this is all sort of left to the social media companies. So the Zephoria uh, company went to, um, I guess, Dana's Tumblr uh, account and decided they wanted to use the name uh, Zephoria on Tumblr. And, and lo and behold, temporarily, Dana was deprived of her identity on that site. And then uh, with a lot of back and forth and the fact that she's fairly well known and, and very vocal, um, she was able to iron that out with them. But she has 
uh, written a great post about the whole process called A Customer Service Nightmare, Resolving Trademark and Personal Reputation in a Limited Namespace that gives a great history of sort of how we got to where we are now um, with this issue. And she gives some recommendations, some non-legal, very practical recommendations for how companies should deal with this. And she doesn't really think that trademark is, is the way to go. Um, so uh, let me, um, I'm going to post the uh, link up. Give that to our studio here so you guys can take a look at it too. And uh, toss it over to Matt. What do you, uh, what do you think about all this and uh, how do we deal with this issue? Are you on mute? There, I'm sorry about that. Okay. Um, well, I read her first article and then I saw that throughout the process she was getting responses. And I find it interesting that I, and I, I see this with other, um, I don't know if it's happened to me, but um, for instance, on the, the Twit Network, I've seen it on the Twit Network. I've seen it happen with uh, Tom and, and Sarah, I think, when they've had problems uh, relating to companies, whether those companies are really part of the social media uh, field in, or, or not, even larger companies like AT&T. They've had some real success with being able to go out there and just they'll tweet out something, you know, some complaint about service. And sure enough, there's people out there monitoring, you know, uh, and, and buffering or at least somehow uh, looking at these things. And I, f I find that interesting that they're able to, these things are able, to, you're able to deal with it without necessarily calling up somebody, although you have to get stuck on the phone after that. Uh, but with regard to this one, it seemed like a, an odd process where there was just an automatic um, denial here. And then, then they went through and uh, after she complained and she, and, and she got some, uh, she, she got some, some resolution, and I think her, her four points or five points at the end of her article are very good to show some of the possibilities you could go through, uh, much like just a, kind of a normal negotiation to get these, these things dealt with rather than having an automatic, you know, we think, because uh, uh, oftentimes you just kind of have to show, okay, I've had this name, I've developed an identity, um, uh, with, even if it's on another issue, you know, there, there's there's things out there that can be done between these parties, uh, rather than having this immediate cutoff that the uh, company like Tumblr uh, goes through first before they deal with any of the issues. Right. I, I'm going to read those five points in a second, but first I want to highlight another part of her article that just made me smile and laugh. You know, looking back on the history of things and remembering when all this was unfolding. Um, in the early days of Web 2.0, the technology stalwarts and traditional companies rolled their eyes as the millions of consumers started using social media, media to babble on about their lives. The New York Times dismissed bloggers as amateur diarists, and few took the cultural practices playing out particularly seriously. And then blogs started screwing with PageRank, and companies started <laughs> realizing that if bloggers talked <clears throat> about them, it would ripple across the web. By the time Twitter got big, companies realized that they needed to jump on the bandwagon and create a presence in these newfangled spaces. And all of a sudden, companies and individuals started competing for the precious, unique identifiers on countless services across the web. My personal favorite example of this is my former law firm um, has to be designated not by Reed Smith, which was, you know, what we all called it and everybody out in the industry calls it. But there is a fellow named Reed Smith who's very popular. He has huh. 6,500 <laughs> plus followers on Twitter and of course he was there oh, first because bastard. yeah so he is Reed Smith and they are Reed Smith LLP um, and that's just the way it is and I don't you know he could have been in a in a Dana Boyd like situation where they came and dumped and said we have a trademark and 
and fork it over. So I'm sure, you know, and Eli, you probably, uh, your handle being reckless. I don't know if there's a company out there with that There's a really famous record store in Chicago named Reckless Uh Records. And I'm sure there's a very famous record store in Chicago named Reckless Records. And uh, I'm sure they, they hate me. Um, which is sad because I love them, but so uh, I, I was there first. You know, at some level, isn't this like, I mean, isn't, these feel like old cases, old trademark cases in new contexts to me. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was in law school, I remember, you know, we sat around reading the anti-cyber squatting provisions of, of like Title 15 or whatever. Like, you know, I, I feel like this is, you know, Dana says trademark is not the answer, but like, in some level, we've had this conversation in many different ways before, right? I mean, this is this goes back to starting, you know, VerizonSucks.com and Verizon coming and saying, you know, you're, you're, there's dilution here because you're, you're ruining our brand and we've wound this to the courts. I mean, this just seems like, you know, these five points, which are, are really good points and a good policy, it almost feels like that should be legislated. You, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. not, you know, you, you can't. You have to start this at the top. This this has to be a this has to be a general framework for understanding identity in society. Not well, Tumblr is a good company because they have this framework, but Twitter has a different framework. Or you know, she goes into Facebook doling out the page names in a two tier system. Uh, you know, there's there's a balance there. I mean, I, you know, I I you know, I think it. You know, when I was in Engadget, there was a lot of people who would squat the Engadget name on different services. And we would have mm-hmm. to go and you know write the emails and say, well, we need the engagement name back because, you know, this guy's posting pictures of himself naked, and we, we can't we can't have that. Um, right. So I mean that you know there's a certain amount of I see both sides of this issue very clearly, but I, I feel like the the real solution this the real you know I, I don't know when I became this sort of like statist person. Um, I, I the real solution I think comes from above the individual service and corporate level. I think it has to come at, at a legislative level. And that's that's why, you know, there's a relationship to trademarks here where we've solved a lot of these problems in trademark. And there's a relationship there that I, I think needs to be developed further. Yeah, I think that's a good point because if you look at these five points, a lot of the criteria in the analysis. Let's say what they do. are. We're, we've been talking a lot about okay. them. Let's uh, number one is you know, un- unlike what happened to Dana, I don't think she was ever contacted. I think she was just locked out of her account. Um, so she suggests that you try to contact the account holder whose account is being challenged, uh, yeah, email, private step. message, <laughs> etc., and give them time to respond. Um, before moving or deleting the account, post a message on the account indicating that the ownership has been challenged and asking the viewers of the page to ask the owner to contact the service as soon as possible to resolve it. This will prompt the user's friends to get them to act and then explicitly ask both parties for comments, perhaps even consider asking the broader user base to weigh in, treat the identity space as a comments because that's what it is. Number four, deal with each case on an individual basis, weigh in first come trademark, uh, rep- personal reputation, web presence history, activity on the service, etc. Don't simply reinforce existing power by assuming that the company is more legitimate than the individual. And finally, publicly explain the, deci- the decision-making process so that the public understands the issues. Think of this as a court record. Because, she says, it kills me when social media companies scream about the importance of open source and governmental transparency but refuse to make their own customer service processes transparent. So, okay, uh, I've, I've really got to jump in here and just and ask the question. I mean, are you are you kidding, Dana? Uh, I mean, yes, these are all wonderful, lofty ideals. But good grief! Um, 
you know, this is totally going to multiply the amount that it costs to use Tumblr, right? You know, mm. how much is the uh, sign-up fee for Tumblr? How much is it? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Um, who's going to pay for this? I mean, this, this five part process of, you know, which is essentially due process and all of that, that stuff. I mean, this is a wonderful theoretical abstract idea, but to, 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 to think that this should become the norm, uh, for platform providers like this is just simply asking too much. There's got to be uh, a better way around this. And I don't know what that is, but I think I know at least what direction it points uh, or what direction we need to point to to get there. And it, that direction is the place out there somewhere where there is no longer a, a distinction, uh, which I believe is an artificial distinction that, that Dana is making here, between uh, trademark law and <clears throat> these norms uh, that seem to arise in the social media context. And, and there are a couple of interesting, uh, a couple of thing, places in the article where she, where she brings up this idea. First, she says individuals have become corporatized just as corporations have become people. So we see kind of this uh, reversing of roles as to you know, how identity plays out for a particular entity, whether it be a person or, or a company. Then she says later on, a company may have have a trademark. She's talking about these companies who have trademark rights, but then just kind of go out and, and use monikers, sign up for accounts using certain names without doing really doing anything meaningful there. She says they may have a trademark, but in social media land, they're squatters. And then finally, she says, uh, in, when she's talking about some of these norms or some of these, you know, these five points things here, she's saying these are not simply to protect trademark owners but to balance the interests of all relevant parties. So all three of these observations that I've, that I've pulled out of these things are implicitly talking about a distinction or maybe a better way of thinking about it is, you know, there's a universe of identity here. And for those of you just listening and not watching, I'm drawing a big circle on this, on the, <laughs> the screen as if to represent uh, the universe in a Venn diagram, you know, that, that is identity. And within that is just trademark. There's perhaps one of the things we could do is kind of expand that uh, scope of what trademark is. And I, this is, I realize this is dangerous to be saying this, but we need to somehow uh, reduce the lack of overlap uh, between all of these rights and what they are and, and somehow figure out a normative way that these things are protected in ways that will, if we're going to have a top-down solution, which you suggest, Neelai, which is probably the only practical way to get this done if we can't rely on market forces for a free service like Tumblr to do it, um, you know, it's got to be in a... In a in a uh, language or in a set of uh, regulations with of the small r that makes sense uh, and kind of encapsulate cognitively what these interests truly are without this artificial distinction. Well, you know, I think it's interesting when you say market forces there because it's, you know, the only way I think the market works in this context is if you had a site exactly like Tumblr that offered a different set of policies about domain error usernames, right? And then people could choose the market solution that worked better. And but that's not that's never going to happen. I, you know, it's there's a limit to how much the market can operate. And I don't think anybody looks at these policies to make a decision about what product to purchase or what service to use. So when I, you know, it has to come from the top down because the, I don't think the market will ever act on this stuff. I don't, I don't think anybody is going to leave Facebook because they changed the way they dole out page names. I think they'll get irritated and say, well, you should change this. And Facebook will say, okay, maybe we'll change it. But there's no market for other 
for other types of policies in, in this place. It, it, there are some places, and it's weird. It's weird for me. It, it feels cognitively wrong for me to think the government should do something. It's, it, it instinctively feels like the wrong answer to me. But I think in, in a case like this, I think you're right. You have to say, well, we have a body of law that deals specifically with like brand, right? Mm -hmm. And what people associate with brand. And source. we have to right, mm -hmm. source. And we have to, you know, somehow nudge that in a direction that we can deal with these new forms of source identification and personal brand and all this stuff. And I think it can be done. Uh, and I think it can be done in a narrow way that doesn't implicate all kinds of other crazy stuff. But I, I, I agree that I think it, it's there's trademark here in a, in a real way, and it's not set aside trademark and think about holistically all this. That, that's a whole other. It's like creating another body of law, and you don't. I don't think mm. we want to do that. It's well, it's norm it norms, and I always get really nervous when we rely too much on norms. Clearly, um, you know the great example that Larry Lessig used when he spoke here in Chicago the other day about the importance of norms. You know, you don't wear. Uh, a, a man is not going to wear a dress to give a keynote presentation at a at a um, at a at a play. Or was that Larry Lessig who said that? Anyway, that's a great example of a norm. I don't think it was him, but I read that somewhere else. Norms are important, but if we're going to rely on them to have as much of an effect as we want them to have, or as much as law has, and if we're going to delegate that responsibility to norms and have faith that they will they will be executed in that way, that's really dangerous. And I see something akin to what De Tocqueville talked about in you know the tyranny of the majority, because things can get really out of hand when you rely on norms like this. It's got to be more systematized in some way. Well, I mean, one thing that occurs to me, and, and I don't necessarily think it would work very well, but it seems like a logical um, thing to think about in this context is bolting something on to the domain name system that deals with this, because we're sim we are talking about domain names. We're simply talking about the subdomain portion of them that comes after the slash. Um, so, you know, I mean, we do have arbitration and, and various rules and norms set up around how you resolve when two people want the same domain name. Um, so perhaps there's some sort of systematized way we could address uh, this yeah, problem as well. Yeah, but are you going to put well. Reed Smith the guy? Are you going to put Reed Smith the guy in ICANN arbitration against Reed Smith LLP? I mean... That, that well, is so out example. of balance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's so out of balance. I mean, yeah. whatever. I mean, are you going to put, you know, Mercedes, the girl across the street, and I can arbitration against Mercedes Benz? I mean, right. Well, I guess that's so Dana's point, there. too, I mean, is that, you know, we've wound up in, individuals have wound up playing in this world that is very corporatized, uh, the norms and rules that deal with these things, and they are not equipped to, to combat um, at the level that would be necessary. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Any any insights here for us? No, I've been sitting here trying to think about the legislative side, and I can't fathom how, how what that's going to look like. So I'm having a hard time picturing. Uh, obviously, I'm, I would always prefer to you know let the market work it out. But I think Eli is right that these aren't issues that companies care about enough. Uh, and I suppose one pressure, one market pressure that comes up is something like this where uh, it's, it gets pressed and maybe Tumblr changes their policy in some way, but that's unlikely for companies like Facebook. Uh, no matter how many complaints they get, until it gets to that big, you know, exploding issue that they have to deal with in the press. So, um, I, I honestly, I don't know. It'd be nice to just to see these sort of things implemented, um, uh, at least to some extent. I know the cost, and that's a good argument by, by Evan with regard to the cost, but I think there's some level of this that can be done with these companies where, uh, your individual ID 
identification on the web is so important. Right. Well, we have a bunch more uh, important and interesting stories, including the iOS tracking kerfuffle uh, to talk about after our break here. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for the show, Netflix. Episode 109 of Twill here is brought to you by Netflix, which delivers movies directly to your home and saves you time, money, and hassle. One of my favorite parts of what Netflix has been up to these days is that you can watch instantly thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or iPad or other handheld device that uh, runs a Netflix app. Or you can stream it directly to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii, Roku. All sorts of DVD players have the Netflix app on them these days. Of course, you can always get your DVDs by mail, too, uh, which is a great aspect of the service. It's what it was founded on, and it's always good to get the DVDs and uh, be able to send them back as well. So you can watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates, which is just a joy. And uh, we have a pick of the week for you from Netflix, courtesy of my own household here. Uh, my son is discovering the joys of Batman, uh, playing a lot of the Batman Lego kinds of things on his Xbox and with friends. So uh, we wanted to expose him to the wonderful, quirky Adam West Batman series, which he had never seen. And uh, one thing I did not know, but you can watch instantly on Netflix, is that there is a movie uh, called Batman the Movie that is based on that wonderful campy series. Um, I couldn't find any of the episodes readily available um, on Netflix or elsewhere, but the movie is, uh, it very much encapsulates them. It has the same cast. It's directed by Leslie H. Martinson and uh, stars Adam West and Burt Ward. They battle sharks, Catwoman, uh, who, of course, was Lee Merriweather, the Joker, Cesar Romero, the Penguin, Burgess Meredith, and the Riddler, Frank Gorshin. Um, so it's just, you know, a great uh, snapshot of what that whole series was about, with the complete with the pows and bams and whams from uh, all the action shots. So um, Batman the Movie is our Netflix peak for this week. Uh, you can instantly watch it or choose from thousands of TV episodes. <laughs> and other movies when you register for a free trial membership go to netflix.com slash twit and you can sign up for your free trial we thank netflix so much for their support of this week in law um, are you guys big batman fans when you were growing up oh yeah that movie is awesome by the way i love that yes. movie i hadn't seen it's, it until yesterday and yeah it uh, is ridiculous and amazing yes it was good and i love frank gorshin he uh he always Reminds me, too, of that great Star Trek episode where he played uh, one of the guys with the half-black, half-white face. Let that be your last battlefield, I think it was called. <laughs> their, their wonderful uh, race commentary. So um, as we're racing through our stories here, uh, let's talk about iOS tracking and, uh, and Android tracking and cell phone tracking in general and whether this is a big deal or not. Um, certainly, it's been getting a lot of press um, it's from, I think, Apple's and I think probably the other uh, handheld device manufacturer standpoints. Um, this is something that, you know, they've disclosed and that is offering all kinds of good functionality for um, their users. And yet it has caused a grave concern and now a lawsuit um, over whether it's been uh, adequately disclosed and how it's being used. So, um, Eli, what are your thoughts on this? Well, there's actually two bits of news today that are related to this. One, uh, Apple and Google, uh, May 10th, 
going to the Senate for a hearing on location tracking. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of there'll be a lot of activity around that. And then two, mm-hmm. uh, Verizon today announced that they had previously decided to do it, and they're doing it as of now, um, putting a sticker on every phone that can track you that says, this phone can track you and here are all the ways. <laughs> Consult your user manual, turn it off. So let me count some, the some movement in the world. Yeah. Um, so it's a movement. You know, I think with Apple, uh, you know, they posted this Q&A about what they're doing and exactly how. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that that it's very carefully worded that q and I'll put it that way. Um, you know, they, they, they very bluntly say, we're not tracking you. We never have, we never will. Uh, and then they go on to explain how they have a cache of, of hotspot data, cell tower data that they use to quickly determine location and all this stuff. What they leave out, I think is the fact that every time you do uh, a location thing on an iPhone, anytime you hit location services, it timestamps, the Wi-Fi tower, the Wi-Fi hotspots, the cell towers around you and says, at this timestamp, you know, we, we ping these things. And that's what makes it tracking, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There is an action the phone takes, and that action results in the ability for somebody to use the data to track you. So I think Apple's being very careful when they say, we're not tracking you, because it's obviously not their intent, right? They, they, you know, to maintain a cache of data, you have to know how old the data is to know if it's any good or not, because you're not updating it constantly. So there's a reason they're timestamping it, which, you know, that's an assumption that seems valid, but the end result of all these mistakes they've made, keeping too much data, you know, um, backing up to your computer, the end result of it is that they're tracking you. And so when they say we're not tracking you, I think they're speaking to intent. And mm-hmm. you know, there's intent and there's consequence. And you know, I think the steps they've outlined they're going to take, where they're going to cut the amount of data down to just a week, they're not going to back it up to your computer, and then in iOS 5, presumably, they're going to encrypt the data, then I think all this stuff vanishes and it's not a problem. But the narrow right now, the phone's tracking you. And I think they're sort of like, they're, that's the elephant in the room that they're dancing around with statements about how they have no intention to track you. And Eli, you have, you have uh, probably, uh, you and Denise both have, you know, you have something that uh, I don't come into contact with, and that's like a lot of feedback on these issues. And my first, my first instinct when I heard about this was, okay, you know, I, I get it, but is this going to be like antenna gates or the sheared glass on the iPhone? Do people really <laughs> care? I mean, no, it, it's it's like, it's, it's like, I mean, do they really care or is this going to go away in two weeks? I think some people care a lot. I think my, my readers don't seem to care. <laughs> you know, they're <laughs> used to being tracked. I mean, they're all Google users, right? I mean, they're all Gmail users. And they're, you know, I think that the more sophisticated you are, the more comfortable you are with the idea that you have a lot of devices in your life that know everything about you, right? If somebody got a hold of my laptop, they would know almost everything about me. I mean, they, they would be able to location track me just by looking at my email because I'm constantly telling people where I'm going. Um, right. You know, it's, it, I, and once you have invite all these sophisticated devices in your life and learn about how they work, I, I think you become comfortable with the idea that they know a lot about you. And if somebody got a hold of them, they would also know a lot about you. I think that is a, a tiny self-selecting minority. Um, you know, it's a vocal minority, but it's still a minority. I think... A lot of people, and you know, I don't know why I keep on sounding like the government should do everything for everybody, but here I am again. Um, a lot of people, they don't know it, right? And there is a, a place for, you know, for there to be a, a set of consequences for going too far for every product and service. Because the consumer, if there isn't, 
there isn't a market again for this to be fixed, right? I mean, Apple does it, Google does it, Microsoft does it. There isn't a phone that doesn't track you that provides all the services that these phones do. So, you know, there, there, there comes a time when I think there is a legislative solution here, a regulatory solution to say, this is the amount of tracking you're gonna do. And it's because I, I think the vast majority of consumers are not sophisticated enough to understand it. So, it, you know, the protection has to come from the people who do understand it, which again, makes me sound like this crazy statist. I, I, it's bothering me that I keep on coming up with these solutions, but, but there it is. Support your government, well, ladies. You've been hanging out at the University of Chicago, so it's okay. They're like the most anti-regulatory school in the world. Like, yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's the point I'm trying so to make. Maybe you're, just, maybe you're just resistant to that. You know, you've been pushed into this ethereal kind of like, let's take care of everybody. <laughs> so here we are, it's a I nanny just state. The world so. yeah, I don't know, it's bothersome to me, but here I am. Constantly. Yeah, well, we here are still a couple of consumers who have taken things into their own hands in Florida where they filed suit against Apple. Uh, Vikram Ajampur and William DeVito, both of whom own Apple products, are the plaintiffs. And uh, interestingly, they're suing uh, not just under privacy laws, violations of privacy are alleged, but also under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which if I can explain that very lengthy um, bit of legislation in very straightforward terms, essentially says, thou shalt not mess with my device. Am I right on that, Evan? Well, Pretty much sum uh, it up. That's, that, that's, that's actually pretty good. And, and you just <laughs> at least got to explain it enough to uh, be able to make it clear that, that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act claim is a total loser in this okay. type of situation, <laughs> at least on what we have right now. And, and if I'm going to say something you know, dramatic like that, I'll, I'll follow it up with why I, why I believe that. Please um, do. The, the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is the federal anti-hacking statute. There's a civil cause of action for it for unauthorized access to a protected computer that results in loss or damage to the, um, you know, to the person affected. It doesn't necessarily have to be your computer that's, that's um, uh, unlawfully or accessed without authorization, but that's usually how it plays out. So the theory of the case is that the, um, the unlawful uh, um, you know, action, there was really two kinds of it here. One was in uh, collecting this data. And the other one was in transmitting it, I guess, from, it's, it's unclear because- But there's no transmission. Filed. The, but they do talk about transmission. I think what he was talking about is the transmission to the device that you're backing it up on. That's all I could gather from it. It's very, very uh, you know, unclear. Uh, transmission from your own device. <laughs> right, right, and that that theory has been a loser before, but the and but that's not why I think this is um, this this claim is going to fail. It's much more subtle and it's much more relevant to the larger issue of what the heck do we do when somebody is the victim of a of some kind of breach, uh, some kind of security breach or information uh, loss out of some vector, whether it's the, the, the that vector is your uh, the the manufacturer of your cell phone and the provider of the software for it, or whether it's it's a hacker or whatever else. And, and this point that I'm trying to make here is that I don't think that there is yet the point in time where users have suffered loss or damages as defined by the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, both of those terms are, are, um, are, are defined here, and the term damage means you mess up the computer. You, you impair the integrity of the, of the system or the data that's on it. 
I don't know that that's been shown here. It doesn't seem like it's been pleaded here. Loss means, you know, what it actually costs you because of that. You know, you lose uh, connectivity. You lose, um, you know, you have to spend money to, to figure out what on earth has gone wrong here, doing a security analysis or something like that. The only place I could see in the complaint uh, that, that was filed here where they talk about loss or, or damage is, you know, paragraph 15 talks about the, this risk of privacy violations and stalking. Now, they actually use the word stalking. You know, there could be huh. stalking that goes on here. And section 16 just says that they're harmed by the accrual, uh, the, you know, the collection of this information. Both of those are just very speculative, forward-looking notions about what actually has gone wrong here, how these users have been harmed. And there is some other authority, uh, specifically here from the Seventh Circuit, a case from 2007. I forget the, the name of the case, but I think it, was, uh, it involved a bank. Somebody sued their bank because there was a security breach and said, bank, you should pay for my credit monitoring services. And the bank said, uh, no, we don't think we should have to do that. And the judges agreed, saying, you haven't shown that there's actual loss here that should entitle you to compensation. The, the court essentially, not under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but under a different theory, said, you really haven't suffered harm here because it's all prospective. You know, there's no reason for us to have to order, you know, your credit monitoring services to be paid for because ain't nothing happened yet. Same thing is here. Just the mere fact that this data has been collected and, you know, there was, it didn't, you know, crash the devices or anything because of this, so there's no damage. Um, that's why I think the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act claim is uh, dead in the water on this. But, um, you know, I hope, on, hope I'm wrong. It would make some good television, right? <laughs> Uh, do you guys know about taco suits? Have I, have, I, have I said this on the show yet? So I have this, every time anything happens in the technology world, uh, I get a pile of press releases from little class action firms uh, <laughs> who all fly all around, around the country, which is great. I mean, that's the system. It's good. They should do it. But they also meet press releases, and a lot of them are, are specious. They're like this. You know, I don't think anything is going to come of this. I, I, I don't know what the harm to the consumer was. It's like, this has been happening for months. Apple's like, we made a mistake. We'll turn it off. Nothing Why do you call them taco suits? Um, so anyway, the best press release I ever got was when that firm sued Taco Bell for uh -huh. having like 88% meat. And Taco right. Bell was like, yeah, because there's other stuff in the meat. Like, this sawdust. makes sense. So, so uh, I've been, yeah, sawdust. And whatever makes it delicious. If I could just get a bottle of that. <laughs> anyway, um, so I started, calling, I started calling all specious class actions taco suits. Uh, and I think this one is a, is a true taco suit um, against location tracking because there's no harm to anybody yet. I mean... Uh, you know, actually, I will say this. There is a, uh, one prospective harm. Um, is uh, I read a few articles that they talked to forensics researchers and law enforcement, and they said, we use this data on the phones, this location data, and this, we've, we've gotten convictions based on it. And so Apple's saying, we, we, you know, we don't track you. This data isn't your location. It's not tracking information. I mean, there, there are potentially, like, felons behind bars who like, need to have their convictions overturned. <laughs> Because the manufacturer of the device is saying this isn't actually the location data that the conviction was based on. So I, mm. who knows? That could be wild. But this particular suit, I think, is much more narrow. It's a class action, right? I mean, I, I, they I think the convicted, yeah, convicted felons, I think, don't belong to that class. <laughs> right. It, it's odd to start a class action like this without any real insight or, or, or forethought on the actual damages. Because, I mean, that's really what class action suits are about. Um, I was going to ask a question. I'm not familiar with these particular claims. Um, whether or not there is there any statutory damages that go along with any of these? 
Uh, I think the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has statutory damages provision. I want to say, I, I, don't quote me on, on that. And so, actually, I won't say anything you can quote me on, but I believe it does. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe punitive damages. Because um, yeah, there's no actual damages that they're going to get on the monetary side. So it seems to me as if there's a statutory damages, it can be, you know, well, times 10,000 for each, each person in the class action. Maybe they got some. But I think what's going to happen is the main remedy is to fix it. And by the time that this gets to a point is heard, this case, it's going to be moot if Apple's implemented these procedures are going to put into place in the next few weeks. Right. One hopes. Yeah. Right. All right. So as long as we're talking about class actions, I do want to check in with the high court of our land, the Supreme Court of the United States, huh. which uh, issued a big decision this week uh, called AT&T Mobility versus Conception, or Concepcion, if I'm saying that properly. Um, and it had to do with uh, the underlying case, which has wound its way up through the appellate courts to um, the Supreme Court, had to do with a couple that had been charged sale ta sales tax on mobile phones that AT&T had advertised as free. Uh, the couple believed their charges were unfair and constituted false advertising and fraud. So that was the nature of their claims. But now we've talked a lot on Twill about... Um, fine print buried in contracts that may bind you both on the web and off the web. And uh, there was an arbitration provision in this contract, as there are in many, many contracts with big corporations. And here we are back to um, our situation where the individual is pitted against the resources of large corporations. Well, in this uh, instance, um, you, you uh, had the lower courts deciding that that, act, that part of the agreement with AT&T was unconscionable and not enforcing it and not forcing these consumers into arbitration on their class action that they brought. Um, and you had the Supreme Court unwinding all of that and saying, no, indeed, um, we have a federal arbitration act in this country that advances policies that uh, we think are valuable and that, you know, the arbitration process helps people companies and individuals save money and streamlines the litigation process. So we want to promote arbitration and we're going to go ahead and enforce this clause in this contract. And the, the end result here is that um, companies, AT&T and, and others, um, can force these class action suits, uh, taco suits or otherwise, uh, <laughs> into, into arbitration rather than uh, having them go um, through the main court system and uh, be heard by a jury, which tends to be more beneficial for consumers in these kinds of cases. Um, so, Neelai, did you uh, take a look at this, and do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's really interesting. I mean, um, yeah, you know, on some level, it's it, it's just a statutory interpretation case, right? I mean, it, it's a preemption case. It's mm -hmm. uh, and then on the other level, it's a you know, do you you know, it's a consumers versus corporate case, and you know, I think that it. Our current makeup of the Supreme Court, I mean, I, I think Scalia had to have been up at night, you know, pacing the halls, deciding whether he wants to be a, a federalist or pro-business. You know, those, are, those two aspects of, of his makeup, I think, are at odds with each other. And right. here, and you know, We should that, mention this was a very close ruling, a 5-4 ruling from the Supreme Court. So one yeah, justice like is down the line, 5-4, yeah. right? I mean, right? No surprises here. Um, I, you know... I, I could, you know, if Scalia had come back, if 5-4, they said, well, the states trumped the, you know, that would make sense. I mean, but 
you know, the, the solution here, you know, this isn't the end of the line. The solution here is to have the Federal Arbitration Act revised. And again, mm -hmm. that's still an opportunity. And I think consumer groups should be mobilizing to go do that right now. I mean, that's, that's the real solution to this case, because then the Supreme Court can't say this wasn't the intent. I mean, if, if you look at it as a narrow federal preemption argument, then, it, then this case makes sense. But it still sucks. I mean, you know, talking suits or not, I mean, that is the process. And you know, every time any, literally anything happens, like there's any little bit of news about some company doing something like, you know, connects or failing, I get a press release about a class action. And so, there, <laughs> you know, there is a certain amount of noise in the system, right? But that, I mean, that's the whole point of the system. So, you know, I think that the end result of this is that the Federal Arbitration Act should be revised to allow for this. But at the same time, I see exactly why this case was decided this way. It just makes me unhappy that it got to this point. Right. Evan, um, you know, how about uh, we've talked a lot on the show about uh, unconscionable things that get inserted into agreements that people haven't read. What do you think about this case from that standpoint? Uh, you know, that it's hard for us to get our minds, you know, as consumers around this idea that you may be bound by something that you didn't read and it was in a long contract and uh, something like, like that. But, um, I just don't know a good way around the uh, general setting or the general rule that you are bound by the terms of a contract unless it's found to be both procedurally and substantively unconscionable. And mm -hmm. when you're buying a cell phone, no one has a gun to your head. Nobody is, um, you know, trying to make you do something you don't want to do. You're under your own free will when you go in there. And if you aren't under your own free will, then it might be procedurally unconscionable and it's not going to be binding. But huh. for those 99.9, uh, you know, on uh, purchases of cell phones, it's your decision to not read those things. And given the interest of the, uh, the company here, and, and, you know, I don't want to sound, you know, just, you know, gloaty or, um, you know, grandiosely pro-corporate and all of this, but given the interest of the companies here in managing the costs of litigation, uh, the, the restricting uh, the, 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 the scope of these things so that it all has to be an arbitration is good for the corporate interest. And, uh, you know, if one wants to take a, a Reaganomics perspective on it as well, that's good for us as consumers because it's going to keep the prices of these goods, of these uh, uh, services down. So I'm all about letting the mechanics of these contracts do what it is that the drafters of them intend to do. I don't want to see people being taken advantage of, but I think that you know, if something is uh, unconscionable and it rises to the level of the uh, analysis that the law still provides, which in this case does not overturn, you know, the fact if something is procedurally or substantively unconscionable, it won't be enforced. Uh, that's how we ought to do it. We ought to stick to the mechanics and um, not try to make up ad hoc rules, which is what I think the Supreme Court was suggesting that the, the Ninth Circuit had done. Okay, can right. I throw a monkey wrench into that? Um, what happens if the AT&T T-Mobile merger goes through, right? And then we do have a, a sort of an actual duopoly of, of wireless providers in this country, right? With some regional options, but mostly a duopoly. Uh, and then if you do want a cell phone, you kind of do have a gun to your head that you have to go to these two big providers that have the same language in the contracts. I mean, this comes back to the market argument, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Maybe Leap Wireless has a different contract, but they don't have nationwide service for the phone you want or what have you. Um, does that change your calculus if, you, if there is a duopoly? 
Well, you know, it, it brings it in, it brings the calculus into a realm that uses different terms. You're not, uh, I, I understand, you know, clearly that you're using a metaphor talking about a gun to your head and that metaphor is, or that, that, that gun to your head metaphorically is the lack of, of choice. And, you know, given right. the fact that we live in a society where you just got to have these mobile devices to be a, a member of it and, and participate in the democracy and all that stuff, um, you know, you, you do have no real uh, reasonable alternative uh, to that. So, you know, it, it, again, I don't know that it's going to change the calculus uh, ultimately because these, these are functions of, of contract law. And at the same uh, time, um, we're not talking about the doing away with of a remedy we're not, you know, what this case does not say, and no one has suggested, and I hope that, you know, we as intelligent people are not making the assumption that what this means is, uh, this Justice Scalia has told us that if you get screwed over by your cell phone company, you can't do anything about it. That's absolutely not what this is saying. What the, what, what we say here is just the, the mechanism, the avenue for you to seek that remedy is different now. You got to go through the arbitration that you're agreeing to not, uh, you know, join in with other folks in a class action lawsuit. Now, I will acknowledge that the absence of a class action lawsuit, the inability to do that, if your claim is only, you know, for 12 cents, you're not going to file a lawsuit or, or even go to arbitration over 12 cents, you know, sales tax or whatever. That is, for all intents and purposes, the taking away of a remedy. But I think that, you know, if, if the antitrust uh, framework can stay into play here and make sure that there isn't, uh, you know, isn't, we're not really to that point where the metaphor rings true, that there is a gun to your head, uh, and that, um, you know, we still maintain on the other kind of side of the triangle here, uh, the, um, the, 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 the unconscionability analysis Hopefully there's some kind of balance to where this uh, law as a complex adaptive system, it's a motif I've brought up before, it'll all kind of just stay in check. Hopefully that's the ideal. Yeah, can I? Yeah, I definitely see that. I think Go there's, ahead, two things, there's two things that come up here that, that, that trouble people. That If I look at it that way, it doesn't trouble me as much. And the first thing is, you know, what people aren't reading these. And uh, that's just unfortunate, but it, it's a loser argument. I mean, it's, uh, you have to deal with these, these multi-page contracts, these EULAs, terms of service. It's a common thing, and, and it hasn't been dealt with yet to the point where they've determined what it is they have to do to, you know, so it's not unconscionable. It's assumed to be a valid agreement. Um, they haven't required them to put summaries in or, or some sort of outline that... Re that would break it down more detail or uh, more broadly so that they could understand the terms. And then the other part of this is really what the terms of it are. And here, I think, I think it's almost always going to be okay. Um, and I think that's the part of this ruling that makes sense to me is to, is to, to have um, somebody basically opt in, whether they know it or not, they're opting into this idea of reducing costs and, and making it simple potentially for both parties to resolve a dispute. Now, when they're going to get into the unconscionable portion of it is when they, when the terms of it are okay. We have you have to go to arbitration. Oh, and the max damages you can get is a buck seventy-five. I mean, if you start doing that in the contract, then maybe it does become unconscionable. Um, and I, I go back to law school and I had, there was this one case and I. Uh, it was a big case, and it dealt with this issue where you had uh, airlines that had tickets. And on their tickets, they would have some sort of disclaimer that no one could see or read. No one ever knew was there. That said, basically, you could get like 75 bucks for every death from a plane crash. You know, uh, The max you could reach, you know, it, was, it was crazy like that. And I don't remember what, the, to me, that seems unconscionable. To this, right. it doesn't rise to that level. 
What if you've been tricked into buying the wrong phone because of the confusingly similar icons that are displayed? <laughs> well, that's just clearly unconscionable. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I want to get into uh, what's going on with Wright Haven and the bed intruder. Uh, but before we do that, I want to thank our second sponsor for episode 109 of This Week in Law, and that is Trim Tonic. Um, I don't know if you guys remember or have seen on the Twit Network before Brain Tonic, which is one of my favorite beverages. The folks who mm. bring you Brain Tonic have brought you now Trim Tonic. It's a natural appetite suppressant tonic that takes the edge off being hungry. What makes Trim Tonic unique is that we use no stimulants to get this effect. No caffeine, no hoodia. Instead, they use active ingredients, some of which have clinical studies showing their ability to curb appetite and reduce body fat. The three main ingredients are <clears throat> Acaranthus aspera and Irvingia gabonensis um, seed extracts, which are both tropical plants used in India and Africa for curbing appetites. The third is coca leaf extract. So um, visit trimtonic.com for more information and our coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount. And we thank them so much for their support of This Week in Law. So, um, Evan, why don't you uh, give us an update? I have decided that this qualifies as internet law. <laughs> What's going on yes. with the bed intruder? Oh, poor Antoine Dodson. You know, if you remember, uh, there was this um, video. I, I was going to remember the, the guys who put it together, but they, they, his sister was the victim or of an attempted assault in a home invasion in their home. They're down in, I think, Huntsville, Alabama. And so Antoine was interviewed by the news and, and just a real uh, charismatic guy, you know, said some really, uh, you know, um, energized things over, you know, during his uh, news interview to the uh, perpetrator of this. And it was very animated. And so some uh, remix artists took this and ran the video, ran the audio through auto-tune and timed the video sequence to make a really neat little video uh, about how they snatching your people up and all of that stuff. So that was, you know, really popular. And the song has become popular on iTunes. You know, just look for the Bed Intruder song and, and that's that. So, um, um, the, the point of all this, uh, there was a news story involving Antoine this past week where he had to show up in court on some drug charges. And the point of this is kind of an, an, an exhibition of the, the phenomenon of micro-celebrity. <laughs> this guy <laughs> has, um, you know, been thrust into the, the spotlight. And I don't know if we ever talked about this. I don't think we ever talked about this on the show before. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, it's interesting to think of, uh, you know, some of the rights that were at issue when this was first made because the artists, you know, took this video, this news segment off of the, uh, um, you know, they, they got a copy of it and, and did their artistry on it. And I was wondering what kind of clearance they had gotten uh, you know, uh, copyright and rights of publicity and all that stuff by by using it in this way. But clearly, um, they brought uh, Mr. Dodson on board, you know, because he came along with this. And I'm sure he's getting paid royalties and he's performed at a BET um, event and everything else. So he has embraced, you know, this appropriation of his likeness and his voice and all that stuff. But here he is 
the CNN article that's in our show notes today talks about the, how the 20-year-old has been catapulted uh, to fame and all of that stuff. And so he's, he's internet famous and, and all of that stuff. And so <laughs> here it is. Uh, he gets, the poor kid gets busted for, um, I think he, for pot. And, it was uh, yeah. yes, weed, that thing that grows like grass, as he said. Uh, that's right. And <laughs> exactly. So, so here he is. We're talking about him on Twill. All because yes. of what the internet can do for a person's uh, uh, notoriety. We'll say it that can way. I, you can don't I think quote, the, go ahead. I want to quote the, the, the best part of this entire article. It's the last part. He says, I got pulled over in my Benz Mercedes E-Class. That's, that's right. <laughs> very, very specific. Yes, that's, wow. that's important. It I wonder if he had that before the song. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I wonder if his Twitter handle is Mercedes E-Class. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're right, really so, tying it all together today. This is, this is going well. I like it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the other uh, interesting uh, thing we're tracking this week, uh, no pun intended, is um, what's going on with <laughs> Right Haven. And uh, nothing good is going on with Right Haven. I mean, really, not too much good has been going on with them since their inception. But things are really not going their way. Um, they've had their hat handed to them in several lawsuits now, the most recent of which uh, was this week. And uh, also, Evan, you, uh, you caught that uh, their site was down for a bit, which is sort of ironic given that they've been demanding that other people's sites be taken down because of the copyright violations they are alleging. You want to bring us up to speed on that one? Yeah, like you say, poor, poor Right Haven. It's just not mm -hmm. been things have not been going well for them this week. And I just happened to catch this. This was only really, you know, happening for a few hours over the the weekend. And when I sent an email, well, as soon as I saw this, I sent an email to you, and I can't remember if I copied Eric Gardner on it or if I just sent it to him immediately after, you know, because he, of course, you know, got sued a few weeks ago by by Wright Haven, which was and it was it was dismissed and all that stuff. But. Um, uh, GoDaddy, being a domain name registrar, has an obligation to maintain the integrity of its who is information for you know all domain name registrants, and it reserves the rights. It's actually obligated by ICANN to make sure it ha reserves this right to uh, disable account access and disable web content located at a particular domain name if the registrant doesn't provide accurate who is information to the registrar. And so GoDaddy took the liberty uh, under this reservation of rights to disable rights. Haven's account uh, after I think it got tipped off by someone that the who is information for the righthaven.com domain name was not accurate. So we all get, can have a little chuckle uh, out of this, which is something that, that you know, that it happens. Uh, but we, we, it would not rise to the level of, uh, of, of being worthy of talking about here if it wasn't for Righthaven, who, you know, is taking this holier than thou position when it comes to copyright ownership. And to make that um, transgression even worse, asking for all of these remedies that it's not entitled to, namely, judge, tell them to stop infringing copyright, but also give me their domain name and their web servers and all that stuff. It really makes it nice and, and um, humorous and comical that this, this uh, little uh, thing happened to, to, to Wright Haven over the weekend. So, yeah, And why do I think the GoDaddy got a little bit of pleasure out of that? I think they, I think they might have, you know, because any any time anybody's going to be messing with kind of the status quo of domain name ownership, like what Right Haven's doing, asking for it to be transferred when it when they're not entitled to it, could be, you know, a headache on the part of the uh, on the yeah. domain name registrar. 
Definitely. And if for anybody is interested in a recap of the legal headaches that Wright Haven has been um, undergoing lately, if uh, you go to Tech Dirt, Mike, Mike Masnick's blog, Tech Dirt, uh, under the category uh, company name Wright Haven, and we've got all this in our discussion points at this week in uh, delicious.com slash this week in law slash 109. Um, there is just, you know, suit after suit, instance after instance of um, when Wright Haven's uh, doings in court are not going their way so um, speaking uh, speaking of delicious did you see that it got sold this past week I, did you, you catch I did that? indeed see and uh, by July I need to do something with the delicious account that we use for this week in law uh, for the time <laughs> being I've decided to ignore it but um, yeah they make you uh, transfer it over to the new service and uh, the new company is called Avos I think AVOS Chad Hurley and uh, I believe another YouTube founder um, have uh, come in and scooped up delicious. So uh, that's probably good news, um, but remains to be seen. Uh, Nilay, any uh, Right Haven thoughts before we move on to other things? I mean, this is, I, it's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot to say. I mean, this company yep. has been ridiculous for a long time. And, you know, there's a certain amount of karma here that I think is, is pleasing to all of us. Yes, exactly. Um, also pleasing is uh, the notion that uh, you might have a seat and make a tweet. Uh, Evan uh, also sent me this link to a seat that uh, when you sit down begins to chronicle the fact that uh, you're there. Uh, you want to tell us more about this one, Evan? Uh, yes, this uh, was a post over on the uh, Tech Cocktail blog put up by mm -hmm. my uh, buddy Frank Gruber. And uh, I think it's, I think this is actually, I don't, I don't know where it is. Is it in, is it in the UK? Uh, I don't know exactly. I think so, yeah, let me pull it yeah. up real quick. Where it's a uh, it's a park bench, and uh, it it has uh, some uh, means by which it is made aware of when somebody sits on it, uh, and then it snaps. Or there, I guess there are two different uh, pictures, two different cameras that are positioned to take a picture of uh, the the person who is sitting on the bench, and then also you know the surroundings, and then those are uh, posted to. Um, uh, the web using Twitter and the photo is is put up through TwitPic. So this is a, a really interesting um, um, uh, you know idea because you know it, it it brings in some some cool notions, some cool um, you know community sociality things, whatever you know the whatever. Insert the appropriate social media buzzword here, <laughs> but <laughs> naturally it. Um, uh, you know, when we look at it from this kind of perspective, uh, it brings in some interesting privacy implications because it would not be difficult at all for an unsuspecting person to sit down on this uh, seat, even though it is adorned with a the the, the very familiar uh, source identifying little blue bird that tells us all Twitter, right? Right. Well, um, as we know, Paul Siglia has never heard of Facebook, so it's entirely oh. possible that someone might not have heard of Twitter. Right. And I went to the T-Mobile store looking for an iPhone, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the the unsuspecting person who sits there is going to have their pers their picture, their mug put out there on TwitPic and, and maybe not even know it. And so uh, this is a, this is a 
you know, exactly a, a Cashmere Hill kind of privacy issue of, you know, what kind of expectation of privacy or what kind of expectation we're going to have as to where our image is going to be sent out, you know, when we're in a public space like this. So, so really an intriguing little project that, uh, you know, asks just by its very existence some interesting and provocative little, little privacy questions. And I think it's interesting to see it playing out in the Twitter pick ecosystem like this. Yes, Sandy McKeon over on our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw says this is kind of creepy, especially when paired with the iPhone's unstoppable tracking. Big Brother is <laughs> watching you. So. Yeah, well, uh, my <laughs> Frank, Frank Gruber, you know, who wrote the post that drew my attention to this um, mm -hmm. over on the tech cocktail, tech cocktail cocktail.com, uh, you know, he suggested taking it a step further and trying to uh, tie in Gowalla and Foursquare so that I guess the, the theory, I mean, you know, those are location-based things. So my thought was, what's the big appeal for there being a location-based uh, data point for something that's always in the same spot? But I see what he's talking about. It would be tying the identities of people who are going everywhere else and seeing the, the, uh, the, the tweeting seat as one spot in the whole, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Gestalt of places that... that people are going to. So, you know, there, there are more, even more, uh, depending on how you look at it, more innovative and or invasive ways of, of implementing something like this. Right. Eli, do you think there will be a taco suit over the tweeting seat that they have not sufficiently disclosed that uh, <laughs> when you sit down there? Wait, so um, is this in, this is in the UK? Is that yeah. clear? Uh, it doesn't say it. It's made by a UK company. Yes. Because, you know, you know, in the UK, there's a whole different set of, yeah. here we go, thematic unity. There's a whole different set of, of norms around surveillance and particularly cameras, right? And mm -hmm. I think that there's some ridiculous number of times that every person in the UK is photographed every day, right? It's like thousands of times. So from that perspective, it's, it's like, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the, the citizens of the UK are, are much more apt to not care about having the picture taken. I think the flip side for this, for me, is how is this different than any other live stream camera that you might set up in a park or in a public place? I mean, what is the reasonable expectation of privacy in a park on a bench with a huge blue sign that says tweeting seat? I mean, I, I don't think you have one there. I, well, I, I don't know that it implicates any of that. James Grimmelman would have some interesting things to say about this. He's a professor. I'm, I'm sure you, you've run across his work at New York University uh, Law School. And he wrote a really interesting article at the, in the second half of 2010 that talked about uh, identities like this as first-class objects. And so the difference between this and, um, you know, just the, a, a webcam on a park or something like that is that you are tied to a particular thing and you, are, you have an electronic identity, which would be, well, it's not your electronic identity, but it is a particular, uh, you know, cell in the, the database associated with this tw at tweeting seat account or wherever it all resides in uh, on the TwitPic um, system so that a person's identity and their location and their timing and all that stuff is much more ascertainable than just this diffuse picture of, of a park. Uh, there's something much more ascertainable about uh, who, when, uh, and why, I guess. No, that's much more speculative, but who at least in, and uh, when, who is there and when they're there. As to why, that's, uh, we'll leave that to Kierkegaard or something. So you're saying it's basically like there's a permalink to you or here, right? Uh -huh. As opposed yeah. to you have a video stream and 
you know, you can say it, five minutes past the hour, this person walked by, which is a little bit more ethereal. But yes, is that, right. is that that's the whole, I mean, is that enough to pin an argument on that there's a violation of privacy here, that there's a permalink to your record as opposed to some discrete time that you were, that you can be seen? Yeah, I, goodness. I don't, yeah, who, who knows where that, no, if you if you actually made an informed decision to sit there knowing what was going to happen. It doesn't really matter what comes out of there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, if I okay, if, if this guy's my lawyer, then uh, this company in the UK, the first thing I say is, okay, you're going to put a little plaque on this thing. It's going to give two sentences explaining what's going to happen when they sit here, and and be done yeah. with it, just in case right. that unreasonable person or whatever it is, the person actually probably the normal person out there that that uh, such as my parents, they would walk up to say, oh, "That's a pretty blue bird," and they, they wouldn't <laughs> think twice about what was going to happen when they sat right. down. And which phone did we decide is coming with the disclaimer now that says that it is taking your location data? It's all, it's all the Verizon phones. Mm-hmm. Right. It's all, all the Verizon phones. And- oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, our tip of the week, I'm having a hard time sort of couching it. It's sort of a, a, a twofold tip. There are two things to be learned from this story. Um, number one is if you have... Uh, the copyright in something that is used at popular sporting events, um, that's a good thing to have. And uh, you should uh, probably get in touch with um, various venues where they're playing your copyrighted clip because uh, you might be able to shake some money out of them. And that's what uh, one person has done, a Florida man named Bobby Kent who um, claims to hold the copyright to da-da-da-da-da-da charge. And uh, last year, he, wow. uh, he, he sent out um, letters to every single sporting venue, major league sporting venue in uh, the land. And uh, one of them, the LA Lakers, wrote him a check for $3,000. And you, you might think that uh, Mr. Kent would then go away at that point, but no, he's actually now sued all the rest of them uh, since the Lakers were the only team to respond, um, he has uh, gone after all the rest of the stadium venues. Um, he calls his piece Stadium Doodads and uh, got a copyright for it in 1980. So I guess the uh, the second part of this tip has to do with, um, you know, as people are cautious about singing happy birthday in a way that uh, could get them sued, I guess now we have to worry about da-da-da-da-da-da charge too. So um, there you go. That's our tip of the week. I've always hated the Lakers. And now I I just have another reason. <laughs> they take this guy off. Isn't there? Maybe I'm crazy. Shouldn't shouldn't he go and register with ASCAP or BMI or something and, and like, just royalties. plug into the compulsory licensing he scheme did. and just he did. He it did. just didn't work. He did. And and one he's suing ASCAP too because he says the ASCAP let him down all those years for not collecting the royalties. So. Oh, yeah, I didn't know about that part of the case. Okay, that makes more sense then. I'm like, why, why still, is this dude like, on a beach just getting his checks in the mail? Like, yeah, that's, I think that's other composer. Exactly. Um, okay, and our resource of the week uh, comes our way from a very good friend of Twill and a longtime Twill panelist, Colette Vogel, who is involved with a site that uh, is concerned with these privacy issues we've been talking about today. Uh, it is called Without My Consent. And uh, you can find it at withoutmyconsent.org. Um, I'm going to pull up the uh, founders. Let's see, about my, without my consent. Um, it itself is a nonprofit organization seeking to combat online invasions of privacy and is um, concerned with uh, 
the notion where you know you have um, something embarrassing about you that gets posted in sort of a um, vindictive way, uh, a vengeful way. And in order for you to combat it, you actually have to associate yourself with that thing that you'd really much rather not, you know, be associated with um, in order to get any sort of um, action or result. And so one of the things that they are striving to help people with is to have anonymous plaintiff suits, sort of like if you recall Roe versus Wade way back in the day, um, the plaintiff there did not want to be um, associated with, with the issue, which was um, the fact that she had sought and had an abortion. So um, this this uh, sort of flows from that idea. Um, they are striving to help people in these situations. There are a lot of great people involved with it. Ryan Kahlo, who's been on the show, Violet Blue, Marsha Hoffman from the EFF, um, lots and lots of good folks, Jason Schultz, and of course our friend Colette. So um, withoutmyconsent.org is out there to help you if you uh, find yourself in this unfortunate situation or a friend does. They have resources for victims, for attorneys, and uh, basically um, are still building out the site. And we hope to get a couple of them on to talk about it in more details when it is more ready to go. Um, Evan, you, you and I have uh, talked about this issue a lot. Any, uh, any thoughts about without my consent before we go ahead and wrap the show? Well, this is great. I, I, it's a wonderful idea. I get so many calls, as I'm sure you do too, and anybody who mm -hmm. holds themselves out as a lawyer who um, practices internet law, whatever that may mean, gets so many calls from people who are aggrieved uh, that just either don't have a strong enough case to, to you know, make a lawyer interested in it or just simply don't have the funds to finance a, a lawsuit. So, you know, this is a wonderful uh, service. I hope that it can get the funding that it needs uh, to be meaningful so that they're actually are people available to, to take on these cases. Um, just want to give props to Erica Johnstone, one of the founders there. It looks like she and Colette, you know, have been mm -hmm. very instrumental in this. Erica was, uh, used to be with my firm, Henshaw and Culbertson, uh, mm -hmm. until a few uh, years ago. So she's just, uh, she's great. Uh, so just want to give props to her for, for doing this as well. This is awesome stuff. Yep. Good that they are out there, uh, fighting for folks' rights. So um, that's what we try to do here on Twill is uh, let you know what your rights are and how to think about them or think about them in ways that you might not have before. And I'm really, really grateful to have had this great panel of folks here with us today to do so. Eli Patel, wonderful having you on the show. Yeah, always good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, any other uh, conferences or uh, speaking deals that you're going to have where you look unlike your uh, co-panelists and <laughs> do you want to plug? I, as long as you put me in academic situations, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, no, nothing big on me. Uh, you know, uh, I'm having to have, I'm breaking down the Samsung uh, reply. That'll be in This Is My Next uh, today. Mm -hmm. Not the reply, the countersuit. That'll be in This Is My Next today. And then, you know, I'll be around and we're launching our new site in the fall. So uh, check that out when that happens, I guess. Fabulous. We look forward to that. And of course, Neelai is at Reckless on Twitter and uh, perhaps elsewhere on the web. So thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Thanks for having me. Also back with us today, Matt Macari. Matt, you were wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. Thanks. Folks can find I'm Matt at iMacAZ on Twitter and some IP law, that's S-U-M-I-P-L-A-W dot com is his firm. Thanks a yeah, lot. And I have another thing I'm working on is, uh, sure. it's not up yet. Well, it'll probably happen sometime mid-May, towards the end of May, but I'm doing a, a blog on litigatingapple.com. It'll be litigatingapple uh, also hmm. on Twitter. 
It's going to be a, uh, a review and not so much just specifically looking at the ins and outs of all the cases from an Apple Corporation uh, perspective, but it's going to be uh, looking at these cases to kind of hash out some of the IP issues that always come up because these are great cases. And as Neelai's article points out, there's a lot of really interesting things that can go on in these cases. So I'm going to use that as kind of the cornerstone or the template to allow, gives me the, at least the opportunity to look at some of these issues and, and blog about them. So I'm uh, mostly on the patent side, but there'll be some other IP issues as well. But that's, it's kind of, it's going to be the, since basically any issue you can think of comes up in these cases, that's what I'm going to use as the, as the template to do that. That's great. We look forward to that. And I have to have you uh, explain for us because I'm not sure sort of dimly behind you. Is that an Apple II? That is a Mac Color Classic. Last time I was on, I had my 20th anniversary Mac. So uh -huh. just, I'm just kind of breaking out pieces of the collection. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I, you have to show us your whole museum <laughs> sometime. Yeah, most of it's in storage, but I'll, I'll break them out every time. But something different. Cool. <laughs> Thanks so much. And Evan, great to chat with you as always. Yes, the same. Yeah, this is this has been awesome. It's uh, you know we have smart people on every week, but this one is uh, this one was so much fun because uh, we talked about so many things and such uh, such great perspective. So I have uh, I've had a blast. Always a great way to spend Friday. Yep, me too. And folks, you can find Evan. His wonderful technology law blog is internetcases.com, and he is internetcases on Twitter. And uh, with that, we will wrap the show until next week, episode 110. Between now and then, you might want to visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw, where we post up topics that we're going to discuss on the show. You can uh, always check out our discussion points in progress and for past shows at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw, at least for the time being. Not sure what will happen to the delicious domain when uh, the Avos <laughs> people take over, but for now, the bear, uh, this one would be thisweekinlaw slash one. Also, um, if you're listening live, then you have joined us at 11 Pacific, 1800 UTC, which is when we record every Friday. That's at live.twit.tv. Or uh, you can always get the show, too, in iTunes and various other distribution channels. You can, of course, download the video and audio directly from our show page at twit.com slash twill. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Uh, do shoot me an email if you have anything you uh, think is interesting and that we should discuss. I'm Denise at twit.tv. And until next week, we will see you. Bye-bye.